Good evening, Trinity Forum Church. It's good to be with everyone this evening. Uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for allowing us to have this study together as we look into your scriptures. We look into the apostles whom you have chosen from before the foundations of the world to spread uh, your gospel uh, to every corner of the world, that you may save a particular people for the glorification of yourself. Uh, and uh, through your son, Jesus Christ, who perfectly lived, fulfilled your law, the second Adam, who threw the serpent out of the garden and uh, full, fulfilled the covenant of works, willingly going to the cross and, and dying for your people, that we may be united with him in his death and in his resurrection. And we look forward to reigning with the Son. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, where sin will be wiped away, every tear will be wiped away. And we can worship the Father free from temptation and uh, fellowship with the Lord of hosts. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, good evening. Uh, it is number episode five. We're already in episode five. It feels like, no, honestly, it feels like forever. It feels like I've been in this for like two years. I'm just kidding. I, I am enjoying this. I hope everyone is enjoying it well. I hope it is. Uh, I hope it's helpful. I hope it's edifying the body. That's, that's the primary goal. And uh, equipping you to engage the world and equipping you in... Uh, a further a further love for for the scriptures all right just a quick quick review of what we've gone over up to this point uh over the last four weeks honestly uh, uh we looked at definitions of canon we looked at the exclusive definition functional definition ontological definition uh, we then looked into covenant theology and that took two episodes and those were really the laying the foundation for expectation of scripture and and how we can address liberal arguments and we looked at one uh, liberal argument last week, which was the heresy before orthodoxy, or that the church uh, never really had a, a foundational orthodoxy that it was built uh, upon. So uh, we looked at um, how the functional and ontological definitions and how our liberal opponents really, really grapple or just hold on to this uh, Frankenstein exclusive definition. Well, kind of in this uh, and today we're going to look at uh, the oral argument of our liberal opponents and uh, and their assertion that oral tradition trumped and and had priority over written canon until the second and third centuries. So they're going to say that the the church really didn't care about or see any authority in uh, writing until the second and third century, and they really just cared about oral tradition. Uh, so that's the argument we're going to look at. We're going to do kind of an exercise uh, at the beginning of this. I'm going to, I'm going to read to you. Just uh, I define myself what the liberal argument is. I'm going to to uh, uh, read that argument, and I'm going to ask you guys to think about how you might answer that based on what we've learned in the past four weeks. It's kind of an exercise a little bit, uh, just something different. So. So yeah, when I present this argument, when I present the uh, my definition of it, I like you just maybe pause the video, or maybe I put in like a ten second pause here. Uh, maybe if you're hopefully watching this, maybe with another person, you guys can discuss how you might answer it, 
or even just in your uh, thinking in your head how you might uh, go about this. And that's what we'll be covering today. In the in the next few weeks, the next couple weeks, I think there's probably two, no more than three uh, more lessons that we'll do on Canon. After this week, we'll look into we'll look into uh, authorship of the gospels and the epistles, and then we'll look in the dating. So, so all right, that's what we'll cover today. Is the oral argument from the liberals, and let's get into it. Like I said, I'm going to state the liberal argument, and then I want you to think about how you might answer. What I'll do is I'll, I'll state the argument, and then I'm going to give an example of a liberal scholar and, and of, of what I just defined. I'll stop the video real quick, maybe for like 10 seconds, and, uh, and then start it again. You can just, if you're with somebody, maybe talk about it for a second. But uh, here is the argument The early Christian church was strictly of oral tradition and averse to any type of writing. Therefore, they would have held highly suspect any type of written document defining orthodox beliefs. And the example is uh, liberal scholar Werner Kebler. His argument would be that Mark, which is the earliest, probably what is the earliest gospel, uh, was a revolutionary document designed to undercut the dominantly orality of Christianity and replace it uh, with written text. Now just take a minute and ask yourself, based on what we've learned up to this point three weeks ago, how can I answer that argument and maybe a couple sentences? When you were attempting to answer that question, I hope our study on covenant theology came to mind because that is the fundamental answer to our liberal opponent's objection. If we look at written the, our scriptures as flowing from God's fulfillment of his covenant with Israel and, and uh, bring them out of exile, saving them from the ultimate oppressure, which is sin— and then we can, we see a consistent outflowing of of uh, tradition, written tradition, in the, into the new covenant. Now, our, our liberal opponents do not allow that, and maybe you can see here the neo the neo Marcionite argument continuing, and that they must compartmentalize the church from the old covenant. They cannot allow one to influence the other. They cannot, they cannot accurately say, because their arguments really fall apart at this point, that the, the Jews, Paul especially, Peter, the apostles, uh, are, are continuing the written tradition of covenants as revealed in Jesus Christ to his people, where God acts redemptively in history, and then it is written down later and describes what that act is doing. That cannot be allowed, <laughs> because if we if we allow that, we're we're uh, conceding two things: one, that God has a decree, and that God is sovereign over His creation; and two, that Scripture is breathed out by God. That is theonistos. Then those those two things are just automatically thrown out. So that's the axiom upon which our liberal opponents um, argue from. So. And we can't allow that, by the way. 
So when we were refuting this argument today, when we're refuting that that Christians were averse to writing and that they would see writing as suspect, when we're arguing against that, we we do not argue from their axioms. No way. Uh, why should we? <laughs> They're the ones that are arguing fallaciously in the first place. So let's argue presuppositionally. Let's argue uh, uh, consistently with how Scripture argues itself. And this is this is what we're going to do. Our our opponents will go so far to say that Paul, when he's writing these letters to the churches, that Paul is actually forced to do so. So you can see the compartmentalization here. There is no there is no consistent flow of Paul's writings from an understanding of covenant theology as Paul sees himself as a minister of the new covenant, uh, writing these things to the churches and giving context to God's work giving context to God's redemptive work in, the, in, uh, in history. That's not allowed. Paul is just merely reacting to other proto-orthodoxies and other areas that are encroaching, again, on his territory. I mentioned this last week. The, our liberal opponents see these different Christianities as turf wars, right? Whatever, wh- wherever they defined a different Christianity, it's a turf war. So Paul is just trying to refute those trying to encroach on his churches there's that's the neo-marcionite argument right it is it, it detaches the old testament from the new <laughs> and we just we won't allow that uh, david m carr uh, who's a professor of old testament studies at union theological seminary side note if you see anything from union theological seminary just disregard it <laughs> or just know that's probably wrong uh the Union Theological Seminary is the the tower of Mordor of liberal Christianity in America. It is the the stronghold of liberal Christianity. Uh, uh, David M. Carr suggests that the the New Testament writings uh, were just a way for those different areas to assert their authority and to to attack these other orthodoxies. Um, so you, see, you you can see just immediately how they just refuse to see any any context in historical continuity between old and new, and that the Jews are actually acting uh, consistently with their understanding of covenant theology and writing and writing these uh, these gospels these epistles as ministers of that new covenant. Many other liberal scholars are going to say that before there is a written corpus. That there is this free, it almost sounds like hippie-like when, I, when, I, when they're describing this, uh, that the oral tradition was, was free, was, was uh, inculcated in egalitarianism and freedom. Christianity was unbridled. Right? This is where the liberal comes from, right? Many avenues. Right? The door is, the, the, the way is wide. <laughs> uh, right? This isn't the narrow way. This is the wide path that leads to destruction. The, or, the oral tradition is so free, right? And it was only until they'll point to Mark, because Mark is the earliest gospel, they'll point to Mark until these tyrannical boundaries of orthodoxy started to be put in place where these leaders would attach themselves to, to assert their power. So now we have the rigid, narrow way coming into existence from the written, written text. And again, this is a common time frame for liberals to point to, but they'll say Christianity up until the second and third centuries were strictly of oral, uh, adhered to oral tradition, and 
it wasn't until the second and third centuries that the church started to adopt written texts or, or some literary movement uh, and place a value upon those documents. And they'll say they're only placing value on those documents because it agrees with what they believe. Because, again, the oral tradition allows this egalitarian freedom. So Christian, Christianity was actually late to the party, they would argue, uh, compared to, like, let's say, the Greco-Roman secular counterparts who, who are placing value on, on their pagan texts or their, their, their uh, screen rights, or their philosophers, stuff like that. They would also argue, too, that the oral tradition allowed some kind of immediacy and, and religious experience. They saw Christianity and the followers of Christianity early on as those striving for uh, an immediate experience. And they, and they would argue that anything textual would be a huge blockade to that immediate experience. And, and honestly... We see that today in the church, right? We see that we see people today trying to get immediate emotional experiences uh, through through spiritual events. Uh, they want to they want to feel it now. Uh, the idea that they would have to sit under the authority of elders preaching the word and that sanctification takes time and that God reveals uh, Himself that it will take time for someone to to fully understand God's character, the right, their traditions are going to slowly melt away. Their, the, their human traditions, right. will slowly melt away. This, this is religion, right? And we hear this, uh, we hear this, this mantra all the time. I value relationship over religion. Well, that's just code in saying I value immediacy rather than the slow work of the spirit in me over time in the church under the authority of elders. That's what they're saying. And our liberal opponents are going to say, well, that's how the early church functioned too. That they, they valued immediacy over, over, uh, over a written text which would, which, would, uh, show, which would reveal God over time. And in fact, right? So again, you see the, Mar- the Neo-Marcionite argument here, right? Because God reveals himself over time even in the Old Covenant. That's, that's consistent. But not in the new, apparently. Uh, Michael Kruger, in his book uh, "Heresy" or excuse me, um, "Question of Canon," he uh, he points out uh, Francis Watson, who accurately uh, communicates this neo-Marcionite argument or neo-Marcionism. And uh, Francis Watson says this quote: "The liberals are seeking to cleanse theology and church." from the defilement of the Jewish letter. Liberals cannot allow, uh, end quote, but liberals cannot allow, this is me speaking now, liberals cannot allow any consistency of written tradition in Revelation to continue in a new covenant. They cannot allow it because their arguments fall apart. You can't attack Christianity this way unless you compartmentalize it. right? Unless you lock it in a cage, you lock it in a box, and remove it from any con- uh, historical context. You just can't. <laughs> it's the only way to do that. Obviously, the question is then, is any of this analysis true? I hope you see the sleight of hand here that our liberal opponents are doing. They're, they're, they're pitting orality, tradition, oral tradition, against canon, right? They're saying it's exclusive. It's either one or the other. Well, who, who defined the axiom in that way? Who said that 
that's the definition we have to argue from. Why does, why does oral tradition have to be exclusive to, to canon? Why can't the two coexist? And, in fact, let's, let's think about that. Can the two coexist? Well, let's take that even further. Do the apostles themselves indicate that the two can coexist? Hmm. Well, we're going to get into, into that here later. But let me, let me finish the, uh, the, uh, the statement here. So we gotta we gotta ask ourselves: Is this is this analysis true? Is this liberal argument true? If if the early oral tradition of Christianity was so strong that that any written format would be looked upon with with immense suspicion, uh, is it accurate to say that the New Testament canon was not treated with any seriousness until the second and third century? And really, I honestly think that what we've discussed over the past few weeks uh, gives, us a, gives us a sufficient answer to that question. I really do. But there are specific arguments from our liberal opponents under the umbrella of the orality argument in contention with written canon that I want to address. Now, again, it goes back to let's not, let's not assume that oral tradition is exclusive to canon that we can't have one or the other, that the two can't coexist somehow. We'll keep that in mind. But here's, here's the first specific argument from our liberal opponents in the umbrella of the oral versus the, the written canon, right? So the first argument is, is the illiteracy argument. This is a common one. We have made, you probably have heard this before, right? Uh, this this will eliminate any type of functional definition of canon because most in the first century, especially in the church, were illiterate. So the argument is this: if they can't read, right? How can a written text function in the church if they can't even read it? Right? That would be that would be the argument. They will admit our liberal opponents will admit, however, that even in that context of illiteracy in the first century that bishops and probably deacons, a lot of the deacons, would be able to read and write. So the leaders of the churches would be able to read and write. That's going to be huge, hugely, that sounds like a Trump word, hugely important later. But just keep that in mind. Even the liberals will, will agree that bishops and deacons probably, they, they call them leaders, but um, deacons is more likely uh, accurate, uh, were able to read and, and write. And our Neil Marcionite liberal opponents will point to early Christian, uh, uh, early opponents to Christianity in the first century, most notably a man named Celsus. I've, and I've brought this guy up before. It was probably a year and a half ago, two years ago, in one of the church history lessons uh, I did on a Tuesday evening, I believe. But Celsus was... was uh, <laughs> He did not mince words in his aversion to Christianity in general. And here are just some of the things he had to say about, about the early church. Quote, they are stupid, ignorant yokels who had not even a primary education. So we see the, liberal, the liberals exist even in the first century, right? Even pointing to the illiteracy of, of the church back then. And again, our, our Neo-Marcionite argument continues, right? Because if someone's going to say that, like Celsus here, or 
uh, Walter Bauer or the guy I talked about from Union the- Theological Seminary, if they're going to argue that, they're going to they're automatically assuming that those illiterate Christians have no connection with the literate culture of Judaism. Why? Why would why would they sever that? Why would they not even mention that? Why do they have to be again compartmentalized, dissected from from historical context, and say, yeah, they're just illiterate people that uh, one day wound up in a church somewhere that has no literate connection to any type of culture or something? Even if even if they're even if they're Greeks, even if they're Gentiles. There's a, a Greco-Roman literate culture. So even if they're illiterate, even if the Gentiles are illiterate, they're immersed in a literate culture because what do you think plays are? What do you think dramas are? What do you think, how do you think they hear of the, of the philosophers, of the Stoics? Because they read them. People read them out loud in the public square. <laughs> so it's, 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 it is illogical and... and I laugh because I think it is it is a humorous argument uh, to just simply state, well, they're illiterate, so therefore uh, they wouldn't have any they wouldn't put any emphasis on written written uh, written literature or culture or anything like that. That's crazy. Now I mentioned a little bit ago that our opponents try to pit orality and written tradition against each other. When there's no need to do that. It's ridiculous to do that. I mentioned last week, I mentioned last week that immediately after Pentecost, we see the apostles preaching orally. And as the apostles fan out into different regions, they're establishing churches. And the primary way of doing that is orally teaching, orally preaching, orally teaching, uh, setting, and, and as the apostles are equipping the church and equipping bishops. Uh, and and as the bishops are equi- equipping deacons and, and whatnot, um, that that is not to say. And this is a side note. When I get, we'll, we'll get to this a little bit later. That's, and, and that's not to say that writing wasn't happening at the time when the apostles are setting up these churches, uh, because most likely notes were being written down. Right, specific teachings from the apostles were being written down by uh, probably by the the leaders of the church, the bishops and whatnot. And there are notebooks. They probably have the uh, notebooks even. So that there's again, there's the combination of orality and, and written tradition, even right there, probably. But but do the apostles themselves see any any uh, difficulty with oral tradition and teaching with the authority of of written canon? Well, let's look at Second uh, Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, chapter two, fifteen. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. He doesn't even need to clarify that further, like to explain to them, oh, okay, now I know you're averse to anything written, so, so remember, this is, uh, uh, this is okay too, right? This is just assumed to be, to be authoritative as what Paul spoke to them. His letter is just as authoritative. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2? 
Now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain their traditions even as I deliver them to you. Right? So Paul is, is, is talking about the things orally that he has spoken to them and teaching and setting up the church there. So we see just a glimpse from these two verses into how Paul is setting up the church where oral teaching and instruction was certainly a huge part of what was happening. Uh, but, but that as well, this written authority was taken as equally with what the spoken authority was taken as and that there was no aversion to these letters. There's no aversion to authoritative New Testament uh, writing. So to leap then to the conclusion that any form of writing would be looked upon with disdain or suspicious or suspicion is is reckless at least and it's it's flat out disingenuine it's intellectually dishonest and and certainly the the liberals won't let the apostles speak for themselves they'll just they'll, they were just going to write it off and say well that's just Paul again asserting his his authority on his own turf or something like that reasserting their neo-marcionism and and this this ignores this ignores even the secular historical context. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, in the ancient world, the illiterate were just as familiar with written texts as the literate. I mentioned plays, dramas, right? Philosophers. Uh, the Greeks were were well learned individuals, uh, and there was still illiteracy there. Um. But they were just as familiar with the written, with written uh, texts as the literate were. Uh, let me give you a, a, an example. We can see this principle in children. <laughs> uh, we can see it in children. Even before they can read, right? Parents, we're reading books to them, obviously, right? We're reading books to them, which eventually they will be able to recite and explain uh, as if they read it themselves even before they can read those books. Is that not true? Surely it is. Surely it is. How about when we were catechizing our, our children? Can they memorize that catechism without ever reading it? Can they memorize it by you speaking it to them? Of course they can. I mentioned this is why dramas were a huge, a huge staple in ancient culture as well as public readings. This is why nobody in the ancient world read anything silently. Everything was read aloud. Even, even, if they, even if they were alone, they would read it out loud. It's just the way they did things. And I've made this statement before, that literacy certainly does not, does not mean there's competency. Literacy and competency are not mutually exclusive. No way. For example, the illiterate Christian in the first century Hearing the word read aloud was more competent with the word of God and who God's character is than most evangelicals today with a library of a thousand Bibles. In fact, the more literate our society has become, the more illiterate we are, especially in the things of God. And, of course, this public reading of the New Covenant text goes back to the public reading of the Old Covenant texts. 
again, this is easily explained in the tradition and historical context of the Old Covenant into the New, which our opponents can't and won't allow. And to show that continuity, right, does Paul command that his public uh, or that his letters be read in public? Well, let's read uh, Colossians chapter 4. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. There's two letters he's commanded to be read there, (laughs) right, publicly. Because historically, this makes sense. Because this is how they did things. How about John, when John, when he writes in Revelation 1-3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Well, our, our liberal opponents may say, well, that's not fair. You're using, you're using uh, you know, the apostles' words. And uh, you, really need to, you really need to show how those right after the apostles live, right, to really see that they didn't really like uh, written corpus then either, right? We got to look at some of those apostolic fathers. Okay, well, actually, let's do that. Let's look at some of the apostolic fathers. Let's start with Justin Martyr and chapter 67 of, of his apologetic, of his first apologetic. This is what he writes. And, and the chapter is called, uh, I, I'm trying to remember what the, I didn't write down the chapter title, but it's like Worship on Sundays or something. Here's what he says, quote, And on that day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits, Then, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts uh, to the imitation of these good things. There's a lot of other uh, letters I can read from church fathers, from patristics, from, uh, you know, if you read anything from the third (laughs) third and fourth centuries, they would just, liberals would just say, well, at this point, you know, uh, written tradition, the written canon was seen as authoritative, right? We gotta, we gotta make sure. But you can only, you can only use text prior to that to show any type of, uh, if you want to prove your argument or something like that. Um, but it's, I think it's perfectly clear from what I've just read, and that's just a few things. I only have an hour, so I can't go, I can't exhaustively read every single one. Uh, and I've, like, when I was doing the study for this, there's, I, I wanted to put everything in here. I really did. Uh, but I, I just really can't, right? Uh, it's kind of how like John feels when he's writing the gospel. If he had continued to write all the works that Jesus Christ uh, has done, it would have filled however many books, right? So many, so many examples. But the point is this. The point is the written gospels and, uh, and the letters written uh, by the apostles, the epistles written by them, held the weight of authority of Christ himself as taught by the apostles and which were read to the covenant community. Look, the oral tradition was authoritative, absolutely. The teachings the apostles were giving to the church was authoritative. That authority was given to the written oral teachings of the apostles as well, to the churches. There wasn't this aversion to anything written. And it goes to show that what was written is consistent in orthodoxy and belief in all the churches given. There were not any differences, again, going back to last week. There are not any differences in what Peter's saying. There's not any differences in what Paul is saying. Now, I mentioned when, for example, when the apostles were setting up churches and stuff, 
that uh, in, in them teaching orally, giving them instruction orally, that there was probably writing happening even then, right? There were notes written down. The, the, the apostles themselves probably had a lot of Jesus' teaching written down with them, not to mention that they had the Old Testament scrolls <laughs> to, show, to show that uh, they were talking about Christ, obviously. I mean, that, that's truly, again, but we can't, we can't say that. We can't, we can't point to the fact that they're actually using historical Jewish covenant books to show who Jesus Christ uh, was prophesied in, in those books. Can't do that. That's not fair. Can't, can't actually use history. Okay, anyway. So were, Christian writing, were Christians writing books even before the Gospels um, were, were starting to be disseminated uh, or, or the epistles were being disseminated? And uh, scholars, Christian scholars, most notably Michael Kruger, are going to point out that Christians were out writing their secular counterparts uh, in the first century, the Greco-Roman counterparts, when it came to the amount of texts being written and their technology. Uh, a lot of a lot of what would turn into uh, ways to document and ways to file documents after. Uh, the first century will be from what the church is doing at this point because it's just so permeant uh, uh, inundated right now th- of things being written. They're just taking off, right? Now, just to prove the, the point, I'm going to quote Michael Kruger from his book, A Question of Canon here, and he's going to point out, uh, he's going to point out the manuscripts we have from the second and third centuries alone, right? Uh, so this is from Michael Kruger's book, quote, most of our copies are coming from Matthew, uh, John, Luke, Acts, Romans, Hebrews, and Revelation. The Gospel of John proves to be the most popular of all, with uh, 18 manuscripts at this point in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, a number of which may derive from the 2nd century. For example, he notes P52, P90, P66, and P75. P just means papyri or papyrus. Uh, Matthew's not far behind with 12 manuscripts, and some of these also have been dated to the 2nd century. Uh, he, would, he says P64, 67, 77, 103, and 104. Compared uh, to other ancient religious texts, the sheer quantity of these New Testament texts is impressive. And this does not even include other writings outside the New Testament, such, such as the Shepherd of Hermas. In short, uh, our, the New Testament scholars are going to argue that <clears throat> no one valued texts and written documents as much as Judaism and Christianity. Nobody did. The secular Greco-Romans didn't. Uh, the, uh, the barbarians didn't, right? Uh, nobody did. Most liberal scholars are going to point to how Christians were not refined in their in their literary style, uh, as just a, as an assertion, they'll try to point out uh, some some. Uh, they'll point out the again the the illiteracy of some of the apostles, right? Uh, like <clears throat> Peter being a fisherman, right? What can a fisherman write or say that was had any type of style? But what, if you start looking into, especially the original languages, uh, you certainly see a elegant. Uh, uh, elegance of style and sophistication in, in the literature. Uh, you, those who are studying Greek right now, um, once you start reading like uh, 
John's gospel, right? Which is one of the easier ones to read. It's not, it's not going to be, um, uh, it's a well-written document, but it is, a, it is an easier one to translate as far as, uh, and read as far as a, Greek, a first year Greek student is. But if you go over to Hebrews, that's like PhD level Greek. It's extremely difficult. And uh, James White makes this point, uh, right, for, for Greek students. They'll read John and say, oh, you know, my Greeks come along really well. And then they'll look at Hebrews and then feel like they're never going to be able to understand the language, right? Um, so there certainly is an eloquence in literary style. Um, and, and it's not like that evolved either, right? So another argument would be, well, the literary style uh, evolved over time. And originally it was probably just some hodgepodge of, of whatever, right? But again, we go to Michael Kruger and his, his work in New Testament uh, critical studies. Uh, he suggests um, that those works, because you look back at the second century, all those papyri that we have, that the literary style was very, very sophisticated even at that time. He'll point to some of the apostolic fathers, specifically Irenaeus, and his work against heresies, uh, which was written in Greek. And it is, Irenaeus's letter is praised for its grammar and structure. And again, this is an apostolic father living, coinciding um, uh, with, uh, with the apostles themselves as far as when he lived. I mentioned uh, P, manuscript or manuscript P66, Papyrus 66, which is... Uh, a manuscript of John that they have from the second century. Uh, it is noted for its high quality and is probably, uh, and it may show, it most likely shows the, the professional work of scri- uh, like a scriptorium, like a, of professional scribes uh, all the way back then. Uh, and that's pretty much butting up against when John wrote it himself. So, um, I could I go back I mean I can list more examples uh, but I hope you've seen just from what I've what I've explained here uh, that one Christians were writing outpacing their secular counterparts uh, in in the amount of written text by uh, you know just look at Matthew so there's like 14 manuscripts of Matthew in the second century there's not there's not 14 copies of uh, some some drama or play or or a stoic philosopher by that that point that philosopher had been alive for probably you know 100 years 200 years or whatever or been dead for 200 years and they don't have 14 copies of that manuscript so uh it's perfectly clear that christians just wiped the floor with uh, their secular counterparts now uh, another argument we'll go over uh, fairly quickly is uh our our uh, our opponents will say that the authors of the epistles themselves, so the, the, the apostles and even some of the apostolic fathers themselves, will point out their own aversion to written documents. Um, which is, I, I, maybe you catch the irony there, because how would we know, how could we even make the argument that, what, that an apostolic father was averse to writing? Well, we'd have to read his writing <laughs> to know that. I think that's kind of funny. So here's an example that they they would point to even in in, uh, in the scriptures. They would point to this. Uh, 3 John chapter 1, verse 13. And he says this at the end of this letter. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. 
I hope to see you soon and we'll talk face to face. Uh, so they read that and say, we'll see. John had an aversion to writing because obviously he wanted to see them face to face and not write them with pen and ink. <laughs> now, of, of, of these many arguments, I think this one is the mo- one of the most ridiculous um, because I, can, I think I can just show you a scenario that would refute this kind of lunacy here. Let's, see, I ha- let's say I haven't seen a family member in a long time. Right, and I, but I write to them, and at the end of the letter, I write something similar to what John wrote. So I, I wish to see you in person and not to write you in pen and ink. If you read that, would you automatically assume, would you jump to the conclusion that I'm averse to writing? Um, let's say you actually knew a little bit more about me, like maybe I uh, am an author by trade, or I wrote many other documents. If that is if that is uh, my background, would you would you assume then that because I what I wrote to my family member that I'm averse to writing? That would be an insane assessment. <laughs> and yet this is this is exactly what our liberal opponents have done with uh, Third John. Another man who liberal scholars will point to is uh, a guy named Papias. <clears throat> now. Papias uh, is an apostolic father, and he was a companion of Polycarp, and most likely heard the teachings of the Apostle John uh, orally himself. And Irenaeus mentions him in his writings as well, um, in his Against Heresies volume. And there's one particular quote from Papias that liberal scholars latch onto, like a shark on chum. Uh, And it's Eusebius, the historian, mentions this quote in uh, in his writings from Papias. And this is what Papias says. Quote, I did not suppose that information from books would help me so much as the word of the living, surviving voice. End quote. Again, I think even reading this in face value with no other context, just this quote from something uh, Papias said, you might be able to see how would somebody conclude then that Papias... Uh, thinks that an oral tradition is more authoritative than any type of written canon or something like that. And liberal scholars would say, well, he's mentioning that he'd rather hear uh, the word of the living, surviving voice. I hope you're asking yourself, well, who's that surviving voice? Because this this will play big time in what Pavius is saying. And <laughs> um, now I mentioned the apostolic fathers. They're called that because their lives overlap with the lives of the apostles themselves. And uh, all Papias is really saying here is he's seeking uh, to hear the testimony of, of John, specifically of one of the living disciples who, who lived with Christ, was taught directly from him, and wants to hear that testimony face-to-face. Um, and he longed for that. And, and Papias was, there's a lot of fragments of Papias, but uh, he was somewhat of a historian as well. So he wanted to write down or hear these things as a standpoint from oral history, not because he thought that oral tradition was any anything far more superior than anything written. Um, and I, I like to just give an example here. Uh, let's take, for example, um, Augustine's Confessions, uh, that, that work that Augustine writes. Uh, when I read that document, I read it with uh, the the uh, assumption of authority that the author has incorrectly portraying his own message. So Augustine has a purpose in his writing. 
I take that on face value and the authority uh, of Augustine himself and, and what he's writing, his confessions, that book being a confession to God, a confessional prayer to God uh, itself. Now, let's say, for example, that I lived at the same time as Augustine. Um, and I wanted to hear uh, him talk about these confessions face to face. Just because I want to go hear it from his mouth, does that does that automatically assume then that I take what he's written at less value? In fact, the value that I take what he wrote has driven me to go seek him face to face and maybe an admiration of what he's written or that he's helped me greatly in my own confessional prayers or something like that. Um, it, it would in no way lessen uh, the value of the of what Augustine wrote, even though I wanted to go meet him or hear hear him say it. Uh, it's just that would just be something that historically I would be able to do because I lived during the same time, and we did that with like authors today, right? Being going and meeting some some actors that we enjoy and stuff like that. It's not like we. Um, you know, we'll watch. Uh, we'll watch. What, what is the what is the show on Broadway? Ugh, Hamilton, right? We'll watch Hamilton on Netflix and uh, enjoy it. And, and you know, that's that's. We're not going to say that's not the that's not Hamilton. I mean, it's it's it is Hamilton. But if we can go see it, you know, that'd be great too. But we'll we'll watch it too. It's not a big deal. That might be a, a little further of a stretch of of what I'm talking about. But all that to say is that Papias in no way is, is trying to communicate that an oral tradition here is superior to anything written. That he's not going to believe what John wrote, just what John says. Nah, that's not what he's saying. He just has the, uh, the, the prerogative and the, um, the ability to meet John face-to-face. That's all he's saying. All right, and lastly, real quick, our last our last argument we'll, we'll address here is our liberal opponents will argue that because, uh, because of the eschatological nature of Christianity, uh, that Christians wouldn't see any value in writing anything because they, they were waiting for the imminent return of Christ, for the imminent return of Christ. And uh, many of you or many that hear that might say, well, yeah, uh, all Christians are waiting for the imminent return of Christ. But in the context of what our opponents are saying here is that that they take Matthew 24 or some of the other uh, apocalyptic uh, prophetic utterances of Christ as him promising that the new heavens and the new earth would come in their lifetime. We've seen this argument before. Most famously, I think Christopher Hitchens uses this argument against Christ being a false prophet. And he points to Matthew 24 and, and say, uh, Christ is predicting his return uh, in Matthew 24, in the lifetime of the apostles. And it doesn't happen, right? Therefore, he's a false prophet. These, our liberal opponents here, take the same, uh, take the same, rip that page out of, or maybe Hitchens borrowed that. Uh, um, but they use that same argument, and there's no there's no room here for any type of microcosmic or prophetic uh, 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 destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Uh, any type of return of Christ in judgment as microcosms to a greater fulfillment in the macro, which would be the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, we Christ uses the example of the the wicked tenant, right, the one that sees that his master is delayed. And because his master is delayed, he starts beating his fellow servants. Uh, 
which is fellow covenant members, by the way. And, and then the master comes back and, uh, and uh, treats that wicked servant, throws them with the hypocrites, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, there's microcosms of, of that happening in everyday life, right? Uh, if there's a believer who sees Christ tearing or him doing evil things and, and judgment not coming upon his head, might start treating the brethren with disdain and start beating and becoming drunk uh, and mistreating the covenant community. Uh, only for the Lord to demand his life at a time when he was not expecting it. That's a microcosm of, of how what in the end will look like when Christ does return in the consummation of the new heavens and new earth, when the when the both the the dead are raised and the goats and the sheep are 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 split and the wheat and the chaff are split, and uh, the withered branches are thrown into the pile to be burned. There's no room here for anything micro and macro cosmic. They only see this as Christ. Uh, uh, um, um, a prophetic utterance of Christ returning in the apostles' lifetime. And, and since the apostles must have seen it that way, they don't even allow the apostles to understand that, wow, Christ may return. May, he may well return in our lifetime. But there's, there's, there's an understanding of, that Christ may tarry, that he has, he has to build his church. Right? They've certainly understood that. If the entirety of Christianity saw Matthew 24 as, as a prediction of Christ returning in the apostles' lifetime, well, the church, the church wouldn't have continued past that, probably. Um, not in any meaningful way. Uh, so we see the understanding of, of the early church after the apostles' death of what, of what uh, Matthew 24 is saying. And there's a, there's a better grappling of uh, apocalyptic language anyway. Uh, during this time, especially with the apostles, who, even though influenced by Greco-Roman culture, would have a better understanding of apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic language. Uh, not to mention that they've given they've given the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to to preach the truth and remember all the the things that Christ has taught them. So, um, our opponents will use this and say, "Yeah, so no, no one really put any emphasis on written text because they all thought he was going to return anyway." Uh, again, with the understanding of how the apostles actually viewed uh, these, uh, the consummation of the new heavens and new earth, and as Peter mentions, for one, for for the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. There's certainly an understanding that it could it could take be quite a while as far as in the in the temporal realm of Christ returning, and that the church would exist in the, the same orthodox manner in which it was established. So of course these writings, the New Testament canon was, and we talked about this last uh, last week, right? And uh, why did the apostles write anything down in the first place? Because they knew the church is going to continue. There's a possibility that Christ may tarry for a long time, uh, as far as we're concerned. So, so those are the oral arguments um, that our liberal opponents will uh, you may hear from us, and especially even in our own camp even in the Christian community. For example, Andy Stanley is essentially a Neo-Marcionite, or adheres to, he would, he would not, <laughs> he would disagree with this, probably, but uh, he certainly adheres to some forms of Neo-Marcionism and his unhitching of the Old Testament, uh, his, uh, his 
teaching that we don't need to 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 show the consistency and the the unfolding of revelation in the old and new testaments and how those two interact with each other and in the, in the writing of the new covenant and how the ministers of this new covenant interact in the church uh, he won't do that so we see those neo-marcionite arguments even in the covenant community which is most damaging right the liberal christian community uh, seeks to undermine orthodox belief within the church and uh, and preaches another gospel this is another gospel this is what paul is warning about in galatians um, so uh, so that, those are the arguments. Next week, we, like I said in the in the opening, we'll look at start looking at some uh, authorship uh, issues. Well, not issues, but look at who's writing what, and we'll look at dates uh, of of certain of certain texts. So, uh, please pray with me, Father. I hope uh, we've taken what we've listened to today, and I hope it was clear. I hope it edifies your people. I hope it strength, strengthens them and their ability to articulate your holy word and in the manner of which it was given to us by your apostles uh, through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to save sinners, to sanctify your people, to make your people holy. And we seek to, to glorify you above all else in our teaching, in our, in our interactions with each other, in our interactions with the world. Uh, Father, we pray for, for our enemies. We pray for repentance. We pray for restoration with our with our enemies in the covenant community, <clears throat> that you would you would grant reconciliation and joy in our relationships with uh, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for saving wretched sinners like us, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>